Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Does grace mean I can keep doing bad things and still go to heaven? Does God's love mean I don't have to stop? Does repentance mean if I say I'm sorry, God will let me continue sinning? If if asked those questions, most of us would quickly answer, no, of, of course not. That is until God told us to stop doing something we really wanted to do. In that case, our answer might be less definite. We might start looking for Bible verses that could be interpreted to mean maybe, or listening for prophetic words that say, in your case, it's okay. You're the exception to the rule. Now, I'm not just pulling that one out. I am hearing more and more people saying, well, I know what the Bible says, but God told me it's okay. Let me me tell you this. He's not schizophrenic. (laughs) If he says it here, he still thinks that. So if what you heard isn't in line with this, you didn't hear. It's self-talk. And there's more self-talk going around right now. It's just ridiculous. God said this. God said that. No, he didn't. Stop it. You're confusing us all. You're making us nervous. Just, Just quit putting his name on the thing. He doesn't change. So what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong and and that doesn't that doesn't change. Um, so when I bring this out, I'm, I'm really not being funny. Uh, I, I'm hearing people uh, and really convincing themselves, in your case, it's okay, you're the exception to the rule. It, what used to be unquestionably right or wrong in our mind gradually becomes debatable. We might even start quoting conflicting opinions on the matter to show how uncertain a definite answer is on that subject. Well, we can say, now, well, this person says this, and this person says this. So, I mean, who's to really know? What's happening is that we've entered into the process of making something that was once forbidden into something that is now possible. Before we can convince others that God will allow us to do what we really want to do, we must first convince ourselves In order to do that, we have to start questioning the standards of right and wrong that we have been taught, looking for loopholes. And this temptation to reinterpret God's moral standards is a danger which sooner or later will confront us all. Because sooner or later, each of us will really want to do something God forbids. Have you noticed? Which is why it is so important for us to understand these three terms. Grace, love, and repentance. Would you say those three words? Grace, love, and repentance. As you might expect, each of these words has been given a wide variety of definitions. So that one person might say the word and mean one thing, while another hears hears them say it and understands something entirely different. Since there is only one proper way of deciding the true meaning of each word, and that's listening to the Bible, what it says with an unbiased ear, Let's ask the Bible to tell us what each word means and then ask ourselves how God wants those words to guide us when we really want to do something that he forbids. Let's look at these definitions. First one is grace. Would you say the word charis? 
Now, that's the Greek word, charis. The word grace or charis essentially refers to a gift someone gives you because he or she loves or likes you. Charis actually is the word gift, and it's the one we, we translate grace, but it's gift. And it means that someone, someone uh, likes you, feels positively towards you, and so out of the benevolence of their heart, they give you something. They give you this, and that's, um, that's how we, we end up calling it grace. The gift is undeserved, unearned and undeserved. It's given only because of the kindness and love found in the giver's heart. Jesus is the perfect expression of God's grace. Through him, God lovingly offers salvation to people who don't deserve it. Listen, in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How many know the world doesn't deserve it? <laughs> you know, you've got a lot of bad folk in the world. And not in this room, but out there, they're really, really bad. <laughs> Read Romans 3 with me. But now, apart from the law of Moses... The righteousness of God has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know that, don't you? Your, your flesh, your, the, the emotions, the adrenaline, the, the anger, the fear, the lusts, the greed, the, the, just the garbage that swirls through, you're as bad as we are. We're all the same boat. We all live within these, these, these bodies of ours which have this stuff surging in us. And the Bible would say there's not one human being who deserves to go to heaven. Everybody in fact, from God's perspective, I think we're really a, we're really a case. We're not just sort of bad. We're all of us. Uh, even, the, even the ones that think the most highly of ourselves. Uh, you particularly. <laughs> we're the worst. And, and so God looks at us and says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The only salvation comes as a gift given freely to those who receive it as a gift. Grace. Love, would you say agape? There are several words in Greek which we translate into English as love. But this special word points to the kind of love that gives selflessly. Again, it exists because of the generous heart of the giver, not because of any deserving quality found in the receiver. Read Luke 6 with me if you would. If you love agape, those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But love your enemies and do good, expecting nothing in return. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Did you see that last line? One of my, one of my patterns of my day is to pray the Lord's Prayer uh, in the mornings. And, um, and, and I go through and I taught this years ago, and I might, if I need to, I can, I'd be happy to teach it again. But each one of the statements of the Lord's Prayer is a category. It's an understanding of something that you could minister. And so when I come to the one, the one, the one that I struggle with <laughs> is the forgive us our debts as we forgive those who debt against us. I have just said, God, I want you to forgive me in the same way I forgive them. 
And uh, that, that, that always, I always, I come, that's where I come to a halt. I'm on a roll till then. And I think, okay. And I have to, so I, I have certain people that I would consider opponents. Not here in the church. And, and I actually mean that. Uh, but they, uh, are, they oppose some of the things I believe in and, and I promote. And um, so then I have to stop and I have to kind of work with my heart. Because if I want to be forgiven, I've got to forgive them. And I, and I, have, to be, I have to move beyond that. Notice, I have to be kind to ungrateful and evil men. I'm not saying they're evil, but I'm just saying i got to be like him. And so I bless them. So on many, many mornings, there are certain people who are getting blessed. Oh, God, be with them. Give them a great day. At the same time, I'm asking in the next category that I get protected by it from them. You know, that, the, that, that any plans they have, will, the Lord will stop. But I'm also blessing them. Because I'm supposed to become like God. And he's kind to evil and ungrateful people. Isn't that all? Can you hear that? You're getting stretched. Aren't you? You too have to do this, you know. Don't just look at me up here. This is for you. Me too. You're supposed to be kind Look, look we, what happens is we take that whole thing of harsh judgment and just set it aside. Doesn't mean we don't have opinions. Doesn't mean we don't see evil. Doesn't mean we don't ask for protection. Don't ask, doesn't mean we don't ask for discernment and wisdom on how to handle a mess. But I can't become bitter. I can't become hateful. I can't get in it personally. I have to be kind in my heart. R- read with me Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love, agape, toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is how God shows his love. When we didn't deserve a thing, when we were in full rebellion, God sent his son to save us. Do you see it? Wow. Repentance. Say, would you say metanoia? metanoia. Now that, you'll recognize, that, that word, uh, the, the noia part, is from nous in Greek. That means mind, this kind of mind, the thinking mind. And, and the meta, you have, we use that a lot in meta, metaphysical, meta, whatever, you know, we, we, it's, so it literally means this, metamucil. <laughs> anyway, yes, it, there it is. And, uh, but it means to change the mind, change the mind. The word literally means to change one's mind, to move from one opinion or attitude to another. It means we think differently after we repent. We stop going in one direction and turn around and go in another. The word has nothing to do with emotional feelings of sorrow. Let me emphasize that. Someone can cry a river and say they hate themselves and wish they were never born. That is not repentance. That's sorrow. It's an emotional thing. It's, it's, not, it's not bad. It just is what it is. But it's not repentance. All this boohooing means nothing. We often think of a person cries and says, Oh, I hate myself. They've repented. No, they haven't. They've cried and said they hate themselves. <laughs> Repenting is what? Changing the mind. Turn around. Yeah, it's a very different thing. The word has nothing to do with emotional feelings. It looks to the future, not the past. 
and charts a new course with new attitudes and goals. I'm not, it's not about looking backwards and saying, oh, look what a rotten scum I was. Or, you know, it's looking to the future and saying, and from here on out, this is how I'm going to live. It's a change. In the Bible, the word primarily means to change our attitude toward God. To move from distrust and rebellion to trust and submission. Luke 5, would you read this with me? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There is an entire section of the American church, uh, and it actually goes back, it's, not, it's the Western church, that says repentance is not part of salvation. It is not a necessary part. They would consider it to be a work, and therefore, uh, it has nothing to do with salvation. It's something you kind of do later on in your Christian life as part of your maturity. I believe that's completely false, and I believe it's desperately false. So what, what we've come to in America when we say we want to receive Jesus is a mental affirmation. We say, do you believe in him? In other words, do you think he lived? Do you think he's real? Do you think he died on the cross? Do you think God was, did this thing? So we are affirming some philosophical statements, these truths about Jesus. We affirm those things. And if you affirm them with your mind, you are now saved. But you'll notice you've just, elimin- you've just skipped by something. My will. You just skipped by my rebellion. You skipped by my selfishness. You skipped by my independent spirit. You told, you told me I can go to heaven by just believing these things. You also told me I didn't have to bow my knee and serve him. That's a lie. What happens is there has to be the... You'll notice Jesus apparently didn't know that repentance wasn't necessary. So he went all over the place telling people to repent. Didn't know you. You just have to do with it as he was. He, he was trying. I'm being funny, or I'm being, sin- I'm being sarcastic is what I'm being. That's not funny. All right. There is to be the repentant heart, which is, is what? It's a changing the mind. It is a full surrender. From moving from distrust and rebellion to trust and submission, combined with faith. The, the, the embracing, the reaching out and embracing the cross of Jesus Christ. Saying, when you died for me, you paid for my sins, you are the son of God. I believe these things and I, have, I receive them for myself. When those two things are put together, it's like a chemical reaction. Now there is the new birth. But if you do not have both of them, you do not have it. It is a, it is a submission of the heart and it is, a, and it is a, a reaching out in faith to embrace the finished work of Christ. Those cause the new birth to take place. Which is why so many people, I think you'll see, say, I'm a Christian, you know, I, I, and, I, and I, I have these, these I, I believe these things, I affirm these things, but you'll notice their lives are unchanged. They're still selfish, they're still cruel, they can be just business thieves, it doesn't seem to bother them, they can lie to your face and they don't seem to feel guilty. You go, what is wrong here? Where's the miracle? Where's the change? Aren't we supposed to be different? Yes, we are. Yes, we are not perfect, but we are supposed to be different. And I'm going to tell you, when you put the two things sincerely together, boom, you are different. There's something happens inside that person. But we've been depriving people of a gospel. We haven't taught the gospel and, and called for it. If you go back in the revivals, 
the, the things that really moved people, repentance was a huge part of it. In fact, like Finney, you'd hear about Finney. He had a thing called a mourner's bench. And he'd call people, he says, you come up here and repent. And, 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 and then he'd say, God, take them lower, take them lower. Can you imagine me doing that? <laughs> take them lower, God. Oh, take them lower. And, but what was he doing? He said, God, get them to the point where they, where, they, where, they, where they surrender, where they're sick of the world, they're sick of their sin. God, bring them to an end of themselves. Acts 17.30, read that with me. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Metanoia. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Why should you repent? Because you're going to stand in front of the throne of God someday and give account for your life. Another term that we got, another term that we really get, uh, take the heart out of, is uh, the fear of God. Uh, the, we, we, the people say, well, the fear of God, that's not really fear, it's awe, it's uh, all this kind of nonsense, it's fear. What it means is God knows everything you're thinking and everything you're doing. He sees it all. And the day will come, you'll stand in front of him and give account for it. That's the fear of God. <laughs> and it's, there's a little bit of fear in that, isn't there? Like, okay, don't think I'll do that then. There you go. That's the fear of God at work. It's, it's not a wrong thing. It's just a smart thing. Yeah. If these words are removed from their biblical context, they can be turned into philosophical concepts they give a person permission to deliberately rebel against God's moral standards and assume that they will still go to heaven. In other words, the, these words can be used to justify lawlessness. If, you, if we keep their true biblical definitions in mind, they will empower us to become like Jesus. They will confront and encourage us. They will demand change and assure us that God is patient with us while we learn how to change. Here is a great example. Would you turn with me to Romans 7? And I promise you, I will not say much as I read by this. I'm just, God be with me. Starting at verse 15. Paul, th this passage is often misunderstood. People say, well, this is an unbeliever. No, it's not. This is not an unbeliever we're talking about here. Listen to the person's heart. They love God, they affirm his righteous standards and want to obey him. That's hardly what you'd call a rebel. But it's a person who's trapped by the passions and emotions and junk in their body. Anyone relate to that? Yeah. This is extremely applicable. It's very powerful. I think Paul is reflecting on his own struggles before he learned Romans chapter 8. But listen, listen to him describe this. I want, I want you to see the heart of this person. Verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I what? Hate. Okay, see it? Does this person want to do wrong things? Not at all. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, that would be the law of Moses, confessing that the law is good. So now... No longer am I the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. Look at Paul is literally separating himself from the behavior. He's saying, my spirit doesn't want to do this junk. 
But I'm trapped. My body and the, and the passions within me are dragging me around like a slave on the end of a chain. Do you see that? That's where he's going with this. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Now, he's got to be very careful because the man's a believer. Christ is in him. So he says, no, no, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. Here I am, trapped, being dragged along unwillingly in this mess. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, in my spirit. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Has anyone not, and actually don't raise your hand, I don't want to see it, (laughs) experienced where you say, I am not going to do that. I am not going to do that. And then you've just felt this pressure. It's like you're sitting on top of a volcano trying to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. And the pressure and the drive is just there. And you're just sweating trying to stop it. Amen? Amen. That's what he's describing. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the the body of this death? And then he, he says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, because God has provided a way. Says, and then he describes his condition once more. On the one hand, with my mind, I'm serving the law of God. On the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Let me just define, what do we see in the Romans 7 man? We see a person who wants to obey God, yes. But a person who's, who's not obeying, who's sinning, because the forces, the control, is dragging them along. Yes? yes. All right. To that person, this promise is yours. Read with me uh, 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 belongs to the Romans 7 man. Do you hear this? this? This Romans 7 man is not a phony. He's not a rebel. He's not somebody who's gaming God. He's somebody who's trapped by forces he has yet to learn how to walk free from. Let's look at this. I think Paul in this passage is describing a frustrated believer. He's probably describing the struggle that went on inside himself before he learned the truths he teaches in Romans 8. Notice, the Romans 7 man genuinely wants to obey, but doesn't know how to control the impulses that come from his flesh. He is helplessly enslaved by the forces within his own body. To that person who has put his or her faith in Christ, Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, God knows you would obey if you could. Do, if you could. So until you can, there is no condemnation. Grace covers you. But once you learn how to walk free from the control of your flesh and then choose not to obey, you move into a different category. Now you're rebelling, not struggling. You're defiant, not helpless. And grace was never intended to cover that. Did you hear this? In fact, in the Old Testament, do you know there is no sacrifice for defiant sin? None at all. Thankfully, (laughs) Jesus covers that and and extends it. That's what the book of Hebrews teaches us. Heart searcher. You'll notice it all comes down to the intent of the heart. 
It's not so much what a person does, but why they do it. Two people might be doing the same sin, but for two very different reasons. One is ignorant, confused, or overwhelmed, while the other has silenced their conscience and charged ahead. Their motives are different, and God deals with them differently. One he patiently covers, while, for, while from the other he lifts his presence and confronts. Let me give you an example. If you go to the mission field, very, this, is a, this is a very real issue, and I've, I've, been, in, I've been in places and cultures where this was, was an issue. When, when, the, when the gospel comes to some cultures, you'll have people who have multiple wives. And so you can have a man, and he's got, he's got four wives. Well, now that he's a Christian, what does he do? And I've got to say, one, one horrible solution has been in the past with some missionaries where you have to get rid of three of them. Well, once they're married like this, and then they get put out, they're on the street. They have, nobody will marry them. They're absolutely lost and forsaken. So you've got this terrible crisis, you know, as, as you're, you're trying to do this. So what missionaries generally will do now in those kinds of situations is say, all right, you know, you've got, you've got four wives, those are your wives. You, you care for your wives. But let's stop having multiple wives. And so from then on, as people come to Christ, they marry one, you know, uh, not four. On the other hand, now move here to the United States and move into or, or one of our cultures. And you have somebody who says, well, I'd like four wives. Well, that's tough. Uh, and, well, I'll just do it one at a time. No, you won't. See, now we're gaming God. We're playing a game. We're trying to take grace and, and, and make it allow us to do what we want to do. Now, with an adulterous heart, we're pursuing something. That's very, very different. So you have one person who has four wives. God's blessing him, prospering him, watching over him. You have another person who's trying to try and, try and, and God has confronted him, lifted the power of the Holy Spirit, and is disciplining him. Because he's in rebellion and sin. Without understanding this, we can administer the wrong medicine to the wrong disease. The grace of God is the proper antidote for a person who's trying to earn their salvation by works. But the fear of God and a call for repentance is the proper antidote for a person who is lawless. A lawless person tends to hear the grace of God as permission to keep sinning. There are indeed still people in America who are trying to do enough good deeds to go to heaven, but it seems most of America has become lawless. One way or another, people have come to the conclusion that God doesn't care what we do. But the greatest problem we face is that many in the church have concluded the same thing, usually based on an inaccurate understanding of grace, love, and repentance. Now, I'll be discreet here, but I'll I give you an illustration. I've had a number of these conversations over the years, but this one's classic. I had a man come in at my office a while back, and, and he said, uh, he says, Pastor, I've been, I've been traveling around, and I've been meeting women. Now, he had a wife and, and several children. And he said, I, I, uh, I would like to, to divorce my wife, and I would like to, to, to marry another woman. And he says, now, now I know what you're going to say. He says, I, I, know God, I know God doesn't like this, okay? I know it's wrong. He says, but I'm under grace. And he, and, he says, and he says, and he did this. He said, if grace is even a millionth part works, it's not grace. 
And he said, so, he said, I will apologize to God after I do it. And he has to forgive me. And so now I have a new wife and I'll go to heaven. He came to the wrong place, really, for, to, <laughs> if you want me to, you want some encouragement. That, you didn't, you, anyway, I said, uh, you're gaming God. You're deceiving yourself. You're nothing more than an adulterous man, full of lust, longing to break your covenant. I said, you'll go to hell. But he just about came off the chair. <laughs> really funny, he's just elevated. And he said, oh, it can't be works. I said, garbage. That's not what works means. That's not, and that isn't what works means. But Paul, you know what Paul was talking about when he said all, all the works talk? The works, go to Israel with us on one of these trips, you'll see. It's, it's, it's kind of fulfill all the law of Moses to earn your way to heaven. It has nothing to do with not having any morals or, or, or needing to repent. We've, we've made a philosophical nonsense, really, out of something that was quite, quite practical. He's talking to people who are trying to earn their way to heaven, saying, no, you can't. You're a sinner. You need the grace of God. But in no way was he ever saying, and now that you have the grace, and it can't be a million far works, you know, meaning I could, you can do anything you want. That was never meant like that. Do you understand? Here's the good news. I scared him. I meant to. Because he, and he, hasn't, he did not leave his wife. And they're, they're still going. Hallelujah. He had learned that doctrine. See, he was taught that. And there's, some, there's people on the television right now teaching us. Exactly. Here's, the, here's, the, here's how it goes. How many of your sins, when, when Jesus died on the cross, how many sins did he die for? All the sins of the world. How many of your sins were in the future when he died on the cross? All of them. So how many of your sins did he die for? All of them. So no matter how many you do, they're all paid for, correct? Yes. So you actually, if you choose to, you can just continue to burn your brains out with pornography or, or sell drugs to school children. It's not, God isn't like it. He's not happy with it. But you can do it because it's already been paid for. You follow? You're gaming the system. This is somebody trying to finagle their way around. This is... The, an, you are not, what, what's missing? What was grace given for? Grace was given so you and I could become like Christ. The love of God is shown this way, that while we were yet sinners, he sent his son to die for us. It isn't, some, it isn't that he just thinks you're just absolutely the cat's meow, just the way you are. In fact, he'd like a lot of change. You know what you and I are supposed to look like when we're done? Jesus Christ, how are we doing? Yeah, you too, me too. We're all in process. You walk with this God, he's going to change everything. He's going to clean it up and change it up. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. And repentance isn't boohooing or saying, I'll tell God I'm sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is what? Change the mind. Turn around and go the other way. Hate the very thing that you were doing and, and loathe it and do everything in your power to repair the damage you've just done. A false notion of sin. Many times I've heard people confidently claim that all sin is the same in God's eyes. Have you heard that? One sin, they say, is just as bad as another. And by that same logic, some argue that no sin is worse than another. 
If that were true, it would mean that using bad language is equally as wrong in God's eyes as murder or adultery. But that simply is not true. All sins are not equally evil. Some are far more cruel, selfish, or addictive than others. And the proof that God views them differently can be seen in the variety of punishments assigned to different sins in the Old Testament. For committing one type of sin, a person might have to sacrifice a turtle dove or pay back a portion of money. For another, a person could be taken out and stoned. Clearly, God views some sins as worse than others. And we see the same attitude towards sin carried into the New Testament. Both Jesus and Paul warn us that there are sins we must stop doing in order to go to heaven. They are not telling us to try to earn our salvation. They are telling us that any person who has truly surrendered to God will not continue to do certain things. I didn't put it in. I was going to, and then now I want to. So would you turn to Matthew 5? And we'll get to Matthew 7 there in a minute. Just want you to see something the Lord says, how strong it is. Matthew 5, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking here about adultery. He's talked about murder. Um, and, he, and he says this at verse 27. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lust in, for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he just makes it all the worse. I mean, he just he says, you think that's bad? This is what it really means. And then look what he says in verse 29. This is stunning. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He means what he says. Now, he's not encouraging, let's all pluck out our eyes and cut off our hands. That, that isn't what he's saying. But he is saying, if it came down to it, do whatever you have to do to stop doing those things. Because if you keep doing them, you'll go to hell. And I personally would agree with him. I would rather go into he heaven with one hand than I would to perish with both. Do you follow? He's being very clear. Jesus is not saying, hey, I've come to die for you. And how many, of my, how many sins am I covering? All of them. So keep on up going. That's the grace. You know, just. He didn't say that at all. He said, does he? He's dialectically, complete, opposed to this whole thing. He says, let me tell you. Stop it. Or else. Do whatever you have to do to stop it so that you might inherit eternal life. Look at Matthew 7. Re read this one with me. Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. So then you will know them, and you notice what I have in the parentheses there? False prophets. He's talking here about false prophets who will come and teach the church this is all about church, lawlessness. That there would be teachers and prophets who would come and try to teach the people of God lawlessness. And he says, here's how you can spot them. You will notice they, their lives produce bad fruit. The lawlessness in them makes them produce bad fruit because when you're bad in your heart, your, your fruit's bad. Now let's go on. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many who say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, you who, depart from me, you who practice what? See it? It is not okay. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Biblical discipline. Biblical discipline has nothing to do with punishment. Punishment is intended to hurt someone because they hurt us. But discipline is meant to rescue, not punish. Sometimes we can cling to things that are destroying us or others. And we refuse to let go until circumstances drive us to do so. In that case, God will discipline us directly and or by means of his people. Here's an example of Paul disciplining a man who called himself a Christian but insisted on committing adultery. Let's look at that. 1 Corinthians 5. The man is apparently what we have is a young man who is having an affair with his father's wife. Now, we probably have an older father who's married some young woman, and then he's got an adult son, and the two are having an affair. The church knows about it, and has doing nothing about it. They're not stopping. My speculation is, it's a rich family. <laughs> I think you've got a rich, powerful family, and no one wants to touch this with a stick. And so they're all just kind of hanging back and going, well, you know, whatever. And um, Paul is told about this. He's on the other side of the Aegean Sea. He's over in Ephesus. And yet he says, I, I've gone to prayer. And I have discerned in the spirit that indeed this is happening and that it's rebellion. It is what it is. And he says, so I'm going to take this action. I have already prayed and I'm, 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 I'm taking the spiritual covering off of this man and exposing him to the attacks of the devil, to his body, so that it'll get bad enough and he will repent and, and come back to God. So that he'll be saved in the day of the Lord. Look, look at what he says. Start there at verse 3. For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his what? Yeah, not his spirit. This isn't punishment. I'm not trying to beat this guy up, you know, for some, just out of some, you know, what are you doing? We're going to really get you for it. That's not that at all. So that his what? Spirit may be saved when? Day of the Lord. So that when he finally stands before God someday, he's not going to get cast away, but he will be saved and enter into eternal life. And then he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? He says, I want you to remove this from this because what it'll do is it'll tempt the rest of the church. I mean, how many people in the church will have somebody, well, if he can do it and have an affair, I mean, there's somebody I think is pretty hot, you know, and, and, and so all of a sudden it corrupts, it spreads. The fear of God is removed and people begin to follow their flesh. He says, get it out. It's like leaven in the lump. Get it out. Clean it out. Look at verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. He says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. 
war with the covetous swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. He says, I'm not talking about don't associate with unbelievers for heaven's sakes. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral, that means sexually immoral, person or covetous, he's greedy, or an idolater, he's worshiping idols, or a reviler, that's a verbal abuser, or a drunkard, or a swindler, that's a business thief, somebody who's cheating in their business. Not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders, the unbelieving world? Do you not judge those who are within the church? What's the answer? Yes, you certainly do. Yeah, this isn't that judge not lest you be judged thing. He said the church must discipline where necessary. But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. First of all, I've taken the covering off, and I want you to move them out. I've done this over the years. I don't like doing it. I don't do it until I'm forced to. Let me be clear about something. You'll have people come into a church who are out of the world, and they're living all kinds of wild lifestyles. That is, they are not this. This is not for them. They are, they, are, they are still in their hearts. They don't know right or wrong. They're trying to learn. And so as they come and they discover Christ and they, they discover what's right and they discover what's wrong and they discover how really is, at some point, they'll come to a crisis point where they have to realize like, wow, if I go on with Jesus, that means I've got to pretty well change this. Um, looks like we're going to have to get married, honey. You know, we'll bring the kids. Uh, you, 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 you have that kind of thing where, where the decision is made. But there can come those moments where they're in the church and they learn all of this, and then at some point they realize, wow, if I, if I'm, Jesus wants me to give this up. But you know, I don't want to. I'm going to just trust that grace covers me or just kind of stay silent. That's at the point where I have to step in and I have to say, look, we love you. But I, I don't want you to stand someday before the throne of God and point at me and say, that's my pastor, and he didn't tell me. So I'm telling you right now that what you're doing puts you in jeopardy. You are, if, in fact, if you stay on this course, you will not go to heaven. And I'm warning you, not because I'm angry at you, I'm warning because I love you. And I'm going to, and this is at the end of the line, I warn you that I'm going to put you, I'm putting you out of the church, not as a punishment, but as a warning. I want you to know you are not among the community of the saved. You are outside the community of the saved. I want you to know your soul's in jeopardy. That's the message you need to hear. That's the truth you need to understand. We love you. We long for you to come back. We long for you to repent of this. In fact, no one will be happier to see you than I am. But you must stop. You cannot go to heaven and do this. Now, look down the light to, to chapter 6 there, First uh, Corinthians 6. Look at verses 9 and 10. Look at this list. These are the only things that I will do that for, by the way. It goes down right down the list. Look what Paul says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That means be part of the first resurrection uh, of the righteous. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's all sorts of unbiblical sexual behaviors, idolaters or adulterers, that's people who are violating the marriage covenant, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Those words mean the two sides, the passive and aggressive side of a homosexual relationship, whether it be male or female. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's why church discipline has to be done in some cases. 
when someone finally decides they're going to try to game God, they want to be part of his kingdom, they want to be part of the church, but they've deceived themselves into thinking, I can still practice these things and go to heaven. That's why it's been done. Did it work? You still got your Bible open? Look at chapter 7 for a second. Second, I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Did the man repent? It appears he did. It appears he did. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 7. Listen to this. Paul says, I'll start there at verse 8. He says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, for, though I did regret it. For I see that the, that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of what? See the word? Repentance. Yeah, that that sorrow led you to repentance. For you were, you were sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces what? A repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now listen to how they changed their behavior. Verse 11. For, what, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. You changed. The whole church did. And by the way, elsewhere it says he did. And it says welcome him back in. Don't, don't, don't leave him out. And I mentioned to you that the man I talked to repented and he has continued with his family. Notice that, that the man and the church became sorrowful that they had tolerated adultery and that, the, that godly sorrow produced true repentance, which expressed itself by changed behavior. Paul didn't allow the man to claim to be under grace and continue in that adulterous relationship. Repentance meant he would stop and do everything in his power to repair the damage he had done. Grace didn't mean God didn't care what he did. Grace meant God would forgive him when he repented. And not until he repented. Otherwise, he remained an adulterer. Did you hear that? I mean, I'm, sailing, I'm throwing stuff at you like left and right. Otherwise, he remained an adulterer. Which was why Paul was so alarmed at the Corinthian church for being indifferent toward the man's sin. Paul is saying they weren't being kind to him. They were passively watching him perish. Paul is saying there are things we cannot do and still go to heaven. Real repentance is complete surrender to God. And the person who truly surrenders to God desires to become like him and will pay whatever price is necessary to achieve that goal. Self-denial becomes a familiar part of everyday life. You want to say amen to that? Amen. Confession and fresh surrender happen quickly when we discover we've sinned. And to that heart... To that child of God, God gives endless grace. When you've surrendered, when you love him and, and you're trying, there is endless grace. He just keeps forgiving and keeps washing you. There's not an end to that. But it depends on what's in here. So how does a child of God respond when he or she hears the words grace, love, and repentance? We don't hear God say he doesn't care if we keep on sinning. We hear him inviting us to come to him regardless of how dark our past. We hear him committing himself to us regardless of how weak our flesh. We hear him assuring us of the power of the cross regardless of how far we've fallen. Until we become pure, kind, generous, honest, and selfless. Just like Jesus. 
We hear him committing himself to walk beside us while we change, not giving us permission to walk away. I want to read one more thing quickly to you. I read old books, and this one is, uh, was written in, 17, I mean, written in 1927 about the Moravian revival that took place in 1727. The Moravians were these uh, German pietists, and they, were, they loved Jesus. They were you back then, and they were trying to kill them or, or punish them. And so they fled and lived on this one count's property, Count Zinzendorf in Germany. And they read in the Bible, that, in, in the book of Acts, that God has a baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he has the power of the Holy Spirit. They said, well, seems like we could have this too. And so men, women, and children, about 300 and some of them, men, women, and children, began to fast and pray for a month and a half, saying, God, give us the Holy Spirit that we read about in the book of Acts. We want this. We want what we see here. And it was on, it was on August 13th, 1727, about 11 o'clock in the, in the morning. They were in a chapel service. And the power of God fell on men, women, and children, all of them at once. Kaboom. <laughs> uh, they became Pentecostals right then and there, as you might imagine. And it went on for weeks. I mean, it became an incredible thing. This man is writing about this. And what he's doing in this book, he's trying to say, why was there such revival from that? Why did that spread? I mean, those, they sent out 100 missionaries around the world. Those are the first people that ever sent out missionaries. I mean, places like, like, like Lapland and, 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 and to, the, to the slave populations and the Caribbean. And, I mean, and, if, and if one of them died, they just sent another. They didn't run from it and say, that's dangerous. They just one's dead, we'll send another missionary. And they just kept sending missionaries. After a while, people go, you really mean this stuff, don't you? I mean, it was powerful, powerful. Why did that happen? And here's one of the things he's con- he concludes, he said, is they really preached full surrender. They preached real repentance. It wasn't a cheap grace. They went for the heart. And he quotes here a woman named Catherine Booth. Now, she's married to a man named William Booth. Do you know who William and Catherine Booth were? They founded the Salvation Army, which was an enormous movement of God all over the earth. I mean, it still is, a, still is all over the earth. But, but listen, to, listen to what he, she says here. Mrs., uh, within our memory, well, his memory, Mrs. Catherine Booth, the mother of the Salvation Army, instructed her fellow workers as follows in the winning of souls. Now listen to this, quote, Do not tell anybody they are saved. I never do. I leave that for the Holy Ghost to do. I tell them how to get saved. I try to help them to the way of faith. I bring them up as close as ever I can to the blessed broken body of their Lord. And I will try to show them how willing he is to receive them. And I know that when they really do receive him, the Spirit of God will tell them quickly enough that they are saved. He will not want any assistance about that. I have proved it in hundreds of cases. Nobody knows the soul but God. Nobody can see the secret windings of the depraved heart but God. Nobody can tell when a full surrender is made but God. Nobody can tell when the right hand is cut off or the right eye plucked out but God. 
Nobody can tell when a soul is wholehearted but God. And as soon as he sees it, he will tell that soul it is saved. Did you hear that? There is a real work of God, a real surrender that goes on inside, and an embracing of Christ. And when it does, God sees it. It isn't what you say. It isn't what, you, it isn't what anybody else thinks of you. He knows our heart. He knows it better than we know it ourselves. He knows it perfectly. And when he sees full surrender, he says, that's my child. He fills us with the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will tell you you are saved. You will know it inside. This is, it's called the, the assurance. They used to call it that. The assurance. You'll have the assurance within you that you are a child of God, and you belong to him. Would you stand with me? To the child of God, grace is like a river. He forgives 70 times 7. He washes us. He picks us up. We stumble. We fall. He just washes us over and over again. You'll never exhaust the grace of God. You may confess a thing 10,000 times. And he'll keep forgiving you. As long as your heart is full surrendered. While you're struggling. While you're trying to learn how to do this. While you're trying to learn how to obey him. But don't take that grace. That endless grace. As a way to excuse rebellion, defiance. It's, it, it isn't a covering. You can't, you can't legally game him and to say, you must forgive me even while I continue in my willful rebellion. No, it doesn't work at all. It doesn't apply there. He looks for our hearts. Would you bow your heads with me right now for a moment? Just want to ask, does anybody today need to say, I, I, I hear that, I hear Catherine Booth. I just love the way she says that. It is so clear. And I, I just, I, I fully surrender. I trust Jesus Christ. I give myself wholly to him. That means I give my finances, my, my sex life, my, my career, my, uh, my days, my, my future, my family. I, I will follow him. I fully trust him and submit to him because I know who he is. He's God. He's pure. He's good. I put my hand in his and I say, lead me. Who, who needs to say that today? Anybody just raise your hand. I'm going to just agree with you. I'm not doing anything else to you, but just to let you make that step. Yes, 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 yes. Praise God. Yes, 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 yes. This is not a game. The Holy Spirit is here. The word has been preached. Faith is awakened. And we are reaching out and we're responding to him. Bowing our knee to him. Fully surrender. Lord, uh, just pray with me if you would, church. Heavenly Father, I know who you are. You are good and you are God. I fully surrender. I put my hand in yours and I ask you to lead me with all my heart. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, that I am selfish, rebellious, and independent. And apart from your mercy, I would perish. But you love me, even in this condition. I bow my knee, and I surrender to you. And I want to become like you in all my ways. I thank you for sending your beloved son, that he died to pay for my sins.
I put my arms around that cross and I'll never let go. Jesus Christ, you are my Savior. You have freed me from my sin. And you have given me the Holy Spirit without measure. Come, Holy Spirit. Dwell within me. Tell my heart, I'm a child of God. If there is any area which I have not surrendered, show me that and help me. For I fully intend to surrender completely. In Jesus' powerful name, I pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.